the summer after I graduated high school, it was late in July, and me and my four closest friends packed into a van, and we headed towards our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We were excited to spend a few days together seeing the sights, visiting the national monuments, going to the Smithsonian, Arlington National Cemetery, spending some time together because in just a couple of weeks, we'd be all be going our separate ways off to college. Well, we had a great time together, and as we were getting ready to head back home, we piled into the van, and we had to leave very early in the morning. We needed to be back in Indiana that evening because it was our, it was the first day of our last week of church camp as students. It was at Rainbow Christian Camp in Converse. It's now the Art Christian Ministries, and we didn't want to miss this. So before the sun even rose, we piled all our things in the van and hit the road. I was the driver. My friend Nick was sitting in the passenger seat next to me, and the rest of the guys piled in the back. Now, Nick's job as the guy riding shotgun was simple. Stay awake and keep me awake. Sounds easy enough. So we hit the road. We're not even 15 miles out of the city, and I look around, and everybody in the van is asleep. And I think, okay, here we go. It's just me. Got to focus here, all right? Hands on the wheel, looking ahead. And, and I'm just dialed in. And I've got this big, this big bottle of Gatorade, and I'm chugging it. You know, I'm doing anything I can to stay awake. Well, drinking that much liquid after a while starts to take effect, and I, I really got to go. But that's the one thing that's keeping me awake right now, right? So I'm just eyes ahead. I'm driving. Well, a couple hours into the drive, there is a split in the highway. You can head south or you can head right. Now, keep in mind, these are the days before GPS. All we had were printed out directions. Well, I'm just in the zone. I'm in the right lane, and so when the highway splits, I go to the right, and I start heading north, but we were supposed to go south. And we drive this way for an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours, and I start seeing signs for Cleveland, and we were supposed to be heading more towards Cincinnati. And so I'm like, ah, this, this doesn't feel right. So I pull off. I go up to a gas station. I talk to the guy behind the counter. I'm like, hey, can you, can you tell me where we're at? And he says, yeah, you're in Cuyahoga County, you're just outside of Cleveland. I was like, well, that's not where we're supposed to be, so can you help me out here? He gets me turned around. I go back out to the van. The guys are still asleep. Like, they don't know the difference. So we get back. We're heading the right direction, and uh, a little bit later, they wake up, and they're like, so where are we at? And I'm like, well, we had a little bit of a detour, but we're back on course now. Things are good, and uh, we arrive back at home in Indiana just in time to make it for the first part of camp. See, see, the road sign was there. It was clearly marked. It told me where I was supposed to go, but I I didn't see it. I wasn't paying attention. I'm sure all of us have gone on a road trip before, and you know that when you go on a road trip, you look for various signs to help you find your coordinates. There, There are mile markers which tell you how far you've gone and how far you have left to go. There are signs that let you know of upcoming exits. There are signs that welcome you to a new state or let you know that you're leaving another state. And when you arrive, there's a sign confirming that you've reached your destination. In short, these signs show you the way. And in the Gospel of John, chapters 2 through 12 detail the public ministry of Jesus from its commencement in Galilee to its climax in Jerusalem. This section of John's gospel is organized around seven miracles, or what John refers to as signs. These signs of Jesus show us something very important. 
They show us that God is working in this world through Jesus for our salvation. They show his glory. The first of these seven signs takes place in Cana. It's a small village about six miles outside of Nazareth. And people have gathered together to celebrate a wedding. Now, this occasion is no coincidence for John. It is significant. John intentionally begins these seven signs, begins Jesus' public ministry with a wedding because he wants his readers to make the connection that when Jesus comes at his second coming, it will begin with a marriage feast. So with your Bibles turned to John chapter 2, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we walk through this story together, I want you to notice, first of all, the party. The party. It begins with a wedding. The story begins at a wedding in Cana. And while first century weddings in Israel differed from 21st century weddings in America, there is one universal, long-lasting truth about weddings that transcends cultures and countries and centuries. You know what it is? Weddings are fun. Weddings are occasions of joy and celebration. And I want you to keep this in mind because I think for for many of us, we have this skewed view of Jesus. Like when, when we picture Jesus, we picture this serene, almost blank look, this expressionless look, and this is a picture that's been painted in many depictions throughout history. In fact, there's one picture that was produced in 1940 that you may be familiar with. This is a picture that that is the most printed and produced picture of Jesus of the last hundred years. And I think for a lot of us, this is the picture we think of when we see Jesus because this is the image that we've seen the most. And the problem is, is it's not a bad painting, but it doesn't express fully the true narrative of who Jesus is. See, Jesus was not some cosmic killjoy. Jesus laughed, he cried, he got angry. Jesus expressed the full range of human emotions. 
the church that I attended and served at in college uh, had a, the, the name of the church on the side of the building, and next to it was a huge picture of Jesus. And the first time I saw it, it was a little off-putting. I was like, this is strange, this is weird, because it did not match any picture that I was used to seeing of Jesus. It was this picture of Jesus with his mouth open, his head was back, he had a huge smile on his face, and he was like belly laughing. And I was just like, this just seems strange on the side of a church building. But you know, the more that I studied and the more that I began to understand Jesus, the more I came to appreciate that picture. And I believe that Jesus would have been a blast to hang out with at a wedding. I believe that the fact that he's at a wedding tells us that Jesus liked to have a good time. I think that when it was time to to do the electric slide, that that Jesus would have rounded up all the disciples and, and they would have been dancing. I think Jesus would have loved Night to Shine. I think he would have been out there on the dance floor having an incredible time. And so I don't want you to miss that the first story John shares about Jesus' public ministry is a story of celebration. Now, we're not told who's getting married, but it appears that Jesus' mother, Mary, we're not given her name in this story, but we know that her name is Mary, Jesus' mother serves in some sort of catering role. We know this because verse 3 introduces us to, secondly, the problem. The problem is there's no wine. Verse 3 says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. This isn't good. Somebody didn't do their job. Somebody didn't plan correctly. How could this happen? Well, maybe lots of people brought in some last-minute uninvited friends. Maybe the couple were poor and they didn't have enough money to supply wine for everyone. I mentioned a moment ago that there are differences between first century Jewish weddings and our modern weddings today. And one of the major differences is that a Jewish wedding celebration lasted two to three days up to a week long. And so you can see how that would be difficult to prepare for, right? Like if you're having a one-day reception that lasts a few hours, you know how to prepare for that. You know the guest list, you know who's RSVP'd, you know who's coming. No big deal. But when you're trying to plan for a wedding that might last two or three days, it might last seven days, you don't know who's going to stay for the entire time. You don't know who's going to leave early. You don't know who's going to show up halfway through. There are so many more variables. I also want you to notice this. There are hundreds of people gathered together at this wedding. Mary could have gone to anybody to share with them the problem. Hey, there's no more wine. She could have gone to the master of the banquet. She could have gone to the bridegroom. She could have gone to any number of guests, but she goes to Jesus. Why? Because she knew he was the one who could do something about it. Can I just ask you, how often do we take our problems to someone or something that can't really help us? We take our feelings of hurt and we try to comfort them with food. We, we take our feelings of loneliness and, and we try to fill them up with toxic relationships or pornography. We take our feelings of rejection and, and we go out and, and we buy something for ourselves to try to make us feel better. Where do you go when you encounter problems? Only Jesus can give us what we truly need in times of trouble. 
And so Jesus responds in verse 4. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, at first glance, you might think that response sounds a little disrespectful. Like we would cringe if we heard a young man call his mother today woman. But in the original language, this was a common title of respect. That's why some English translations clarify it by saying, dear woman. You might remember that when Jesus was on the cross, he addressed his mother the same way in John 19, 26. He said, woman, behold your son. He says, my hour has not yet come. This hour is a reference to his death and the events that follow. Later on in John, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. In John 17, verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. You see, the the Old Testament prophets, the image that they often used was that of a a wedding feast. And, And they used this as a picture of the reconciliation and the restoration of the people of Israel with God. God had made a covenant with his people, the Israelites. But the Israelites had not been faithful. They broke that covenant. They turned away from God and they worshiped false gods. And God allowed the Israelites to be exiled away. They allowed their their temple, the the central place of worship in in Jerusalem, to be destroyed. And during this time of exile, the the prophets of Israel begin to talk about a day of reconciliation, a day of restoration that is coming. And, And the language they use for this is that of a wedding feast. And so picture this. While sitting at a wedding, Jesus is thinking about his crucifixion. Jesus is is thinking about his death that is upcoming. And so it's not surprising then that Jesus would turn his attention to the large jars that held water for purification. These jars would have stored water that that people would use to clean themselves before they went for worship. And, And so these jars, these vessels that once held water for purifying us from sin are transformed by Jesus as vessels for wine celebrating a marriage. And that leads us to number three, the provision. We read about the provision in verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. I want you to notice the simplicity in this miracle. There was no prayer. There was no hysterical shouting. There was no abracadabra. There was no laying on of hands. Jesus didn't even taste it afterward to see if it had happened. He simply said, take it to the master of the banquet. It was simple. It was beautiful. The water simply became wine. And that leads us, number four, to the point. We find the point of this sign in verses 9 and 10. He called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after all the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. 
This statement here takes us to the very heart of this sign. The new wine of the kingdom brought by Jesus contrasts the old wine of Judaism. Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. In other words, get this. Jesus is the good wine that has been held back until now. Jesus is what all of the Old Testament has been pointing to. All of the prophets that came before him, the sacrificial system that was in place for hundreds of years, it all pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the best that has been held back for us till now. And so the story ends in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So what does this sign, the turning of water to wine, tell us? First of all, this sign shows us that the mark of discipleship is obedience. It's obedience. In this story, Jesus' mother Mary stands as a picture of a faithful disciple. Do you see it? At the beginning, she approaches Jesus as his mother, and she's gently rebuked. But then she responds as a faithful believer, and her faith is honored. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary leaves the initiative with Jesus. She's completely open to Jesus' will. It shows her humility. Do whatever he tells you. Church, that's good advice. That's good advice for every one of us. Obedience is the mark of someone who truly knows and follows Jesus. Where he leads, I will follow. What he says, I will do. We see this throughout Scripture. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. When Jesus is about ready to leave this earth, he gives us the great commission. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As you make a disciple, as you become a disciple, you obey what Jesus has taught you. In the New Testament letter of James, James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but what? Do what it says. We are to be obedient. And you just have to know, sometimes, sometimes obedience isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. Sometimes it's not going to logically connect the dots. If you're obedient to God in our culture today, people are going to look at you funny. They're going to think you're weird. They're going to think you're strange. You're going to get made fun of. You're going to get laughed at. Obey anyways. This is what we see all throughout Scripture. God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Abraham's going, what? This is the son that we were promised in our old age. You said that I would be the father of many nations, and now you want me to, to, to kill my offspring? Like, like how is this going to work? But Abraham obeys. He takes his son Isaac up to the mountain. He lays him on the altar, and just about when he's ready to sacrifice his son, the Lord stops him. And he provides another sacrifice. God tells Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. 
So in the middle of the night, the, the Israelites get up and they leave. And they're heading out towards the wilderness and, and they approach the Red Sea and they've got this giant sea in front of them. The Egyptians change their mind and they start pursuing the Israelites. You've got the Egyptians behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, and the people start complaining. What are we doing? We should have never left Egypt. But Moses obeys God. He takes his staff, he puts it down into the water, the water splits in two, and the Israelites are saved as they walk through on dry ground. God tells Joshua to have the Israelites march around the walls of Jericho seven times. What kind of battle strategy is that? We're supposed to be in a war right now. Shouldn't we be sharpening our swords? Shouldn't we be recruiting more troops into this battle? Shouldn't there be bloodshed right now? What are we doing wasting our time marching around these city walls? But you know what? They obey. And after seven times marching around the city, the walls crumble, and the Lord gives them victory. Uh, There's a powerful army official named Naaman. He's covered in this skin disease called leprosy. And Elisha the prophet tells him to go and wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. He's saying the Jordan River's brown and dirty. There are so many other bodies of water that are cleaner than this. But you know what? He obeys. And after the seventh time, he gets done washing and his skin is restored. Oftentimes, following Jesus and obeying what he tells you to do isn't going to make logical sense. But obey anyways, trusting him to provide. I love the story that Luke shared with us this morning. It's just a normal, ordinary day. Things were just going as planned, and then an opportunity presents itself. He wasn't planning on this. He begins to pray about it, and he knows what God is calling him to do, and so what does he do? He obeys. He says, who, me? I don't think I'm qualified for this, but, but, but he, he steps into it and obeys what God is calling on his life. And I just want to ask you today, where is God calling you to obey? I think for a lot of us, an area that we really struggle to obey God in is in our finances. God calls us to, to, to bring him the tithe. A tithe simply means 10%. To give 10% of, of what he has blessed us with to give to, to, to God and, and his work through the church. And, and a lot of us think, I can't do that. I, I'm, I'm in debt. I've got bills to pay. There's no way I could do this. Like, this doesn't make financial sense for me. But God is saying, will you trust me to provide in your life? Will you trust that I'm going to provide for you? And I can tell you that God can do a lot more with 90% with God's blessing in your life than you can do 100% without him. Where is God asking you to obey? Secondly, I think this sign shows us that the provision of God is abundance. It's abundance. Listen to the language used to describe this miracle. They filled the jars with water to the brim, right? To the brim. They're overflowing. Six huge stone water jars. And Jesus turns them into over 150 gallons of wine. The picture here is that Jesus provides in abundance. Listen, Jesus did not come to simply provide you with a marginally improved quality of life. He came to overflow in your life with blessing. You ever get one of those like individual size bags of potato chips, right? You're thinking, hey, this will be a good snack. 
and you open it up and there's like six chips in there. It's like 90% air and it's such a letdown. You're like, what, what is this? This is not going to cut it. But I don't know if you guys have ever been to uh, Five Guys. If you've ever gone to Five Guys Burgers and Fries and, and you get an order of fries and they fill the container to overflowing and when they put it in that, in that sack, it's like two to three inches deep full of fries and you're like, there's no way I'm, I'm going to be able to eat all this. I'm not going to be able to finish it. It's, it's just overflowing. It's, it's too much. It's more than enough. And Jesus has come to give you a more than enough life not just to meet your needs, but to go above and beyond. He says in John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, to the brim, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul says in Ephesians three twenty, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more, than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. The Hebrew word for God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Not the God who is just enough, but the God who is more than enough. The God who is more than sufficient. Third, I think this sign shows us that the status of Christ is superior. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. With Jesus for us, the best is always yet to come. We've seen that, that Jesus is the best wine that's been saved for last. Jesus is what everything in the Old Testament was pointing to. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. Fourth and finally, I believe this sign shows us the response of the disciples is belief. The disciples believe. The story ends in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples see what Jesus is doing, and they understand it. Not, not fully, but, but dimly but they understand enough to believe in Jesus. You see, this story demonstrates how God shows up in the mundane, everyday, ordinary events of our lives, like a wedding, and he immediately dispenses his grace. That is a picture of the gospel. Where God shows up in your life, he reveals himself to you and he pours out his blessing, he pours out his mercy, he pours out his grace on your life. On February 8th, it was just a normal, ordinary chapel at Asbury University like it had been for hundreds and thousands of other chapel services. But after the service, a few students stayed around and they continued praying. And they continued praying. And they continued praying. And then more students came back and they prayed throughout the night. And then more students came and, and, and more students came and 
Before long, they, they, were, they were singing, they were praying, they were, they were sharing testimonies, and, and that began to spread to other college campuses. And people around the country began to hear of the work that God was doing at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, and, and people began to travel from all over to, to see this, this work of God. And that revival, 11, 12 days later, is still happening. It was just a normal, ordinary chapel service. Listen, church, the signs are there. They're all around us. Do we see them? Are we paying attention? Because too often, I think we're like the master of the banquet. We're like the bridegroom. Because they were the ones who were most directly reaped the benefits. They, they enjoyed the best wine at the end, right? But they were unaware of what was going on. They didn't know Jesus was the one who provided they were unaware that the Messiah was in their midst, but they just kept on enjoying God's blessing. And how often does that happen in our lives? God's grace constantly surrounds us. His love is constantly active in our lives, yet we often fail to discern his love. All we see are the hands of those who give us the wine, but we don't realize where it comes from and the grace that it represents. We've seen his sign. On this side of the cross, we know that God has revealed his glory in Jesus Christ. The disciples saw this, and they believed in him. The only question for you is, how are you going to respond? Let's pray together. God, we have seen your goodness we have seen your abundant provision in Jesus. God, these, these signs, this turning of the water into wine shows that, that Jesus is the best wine that's been saved for last, that Jesus abundantly provides for us in our lives. But God, how often do we have this tunnel vision where we're just completely unaware of what you're doing in our midst? We're thinking about our busy schedules. We're thinking about all the things that we have to do. We're thinking about ourselves instead of thinking about others. And God, how often do we just miss it? But God, through the cross, you have showed us that Jesus has provided everything that we need. So God, my prayer for all of us today is that we would come to Jesus to receive what it is that you abundantly want to provide for us in our life. You provide us peace. You provide us joy. God, you provide us eternal life. And God, my prayer is that if there's anybody here today who's never received the provision of life that you give through Jesus and Jesus alone, I pray today would be the day that they would accept that free gift. Say, I want to have the gift of eternal life. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to call upon the name of Jesus. I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. God, I'm ready to be baptized into Christ to receive a new life, a new life that only Jesus can give. God, I pray that all of us would have open eyes and open hearts to see what you're doing in this world and in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.